Thank you, God, so much for Fran. Thank you for who she is. Thank you for all that she brings uh, to the life of this church. We pray you bless her as she speaks to us now. And you give us open, open hearts to hear. Amen. Good morning, lovely people. For those of you, it's your first time here. We would like you to know the technology normally works. And unlike some um, very quaint old churches that have a Bible verse arched over uh, the front of the church, we've just gone this morning for a line from one of the songs we were going to sing, which is Jesus, the only one who could ever save. And actually, we cannot remove it. There's something gone significantly wrong, um, and it just won't shift. So come back next week, if this is your first time, see if it's still here, okay? Okay. yeah. Um, as Jenny said, my name is, I'm Fran. Um, I'm part of the leadership team here at the church. And um, I'm delighted to see you all this morning. I don't know if anyone online can see us. Probably not. But hello, anyway. Um, and um, as already shared, this is the second in a series of three talks entitled God, Anger, and Me. Um, a huge topic. And um, I suspect for some of us, a little bit of a topic that might trigger things in us, might poke a few bruises in us. And that is not the aim of these talks. But what we seek to do here at One Church is be a church that engages with the reality and stuff of life in the everyday. Um, rather than, you know, being like a little holy crowd that, uh, where we talk about things that have no relevance to our real lives in the day-to-day. Um, you know, we live in a world, don't we, where it's, I don't know about you, but it seems like there's more overt anger spilling out all over the place. I may be wrong in that. Um, we certainly see, if you've watched the backcloth to the recent um, midterm American elections and listened to people talking about the potential for civil war in the USA, and you think, goodness me, where did that come from? Let alone the violence that we see day in, day out on our streets. And I'm really interested in and saddened by the language that we see often um, in our media of the first question we ask if something goes wrong is, who is to blame? Who do you blame? Who's to blame? And actually, the language of blame has often lying behind it the sense of who should be punished for this. And, and that sense of almost a retribution. You've got it wrong, so you've got to be beaten up about it in some way or another, whether that's emotionally or some penalties on your life. And um, it's possibly because we're, a lot of us are feeling less agency in our life, that things are being done to us. And in many cases, the, the situations where the people that we expect to behave differently, to be, if you like, have a standard of integrity and, and um, concern and valuing of human lives and community life, very often seem increasingly removed from that and doing the opposite. There's a remoteness from our lives. And last week, Dave talked about anger and talked about the fact that anger is not necessarily destructive. Anger can be a constructive force and energy in our lives. A motivating fire for good, he talked about. Now, I have the job of, in a few minutes, unpacking 
anger in the book of Amos. For those of you who don't know much about the book of Amos, um, there's nine chapters there that have an awful lot of anger in them. In fact, to tell you the truth, I think probably Dave said this last week, when we were planning this series, we were, all three talks were going to be on Amos, and one of us who shall be nameless said, oh no, there's too much anger in there. Let's just do it in one week. And I've got the week. Which to me, I'm privileged to have that week. Because actually, if you start unpacking Amos, the whole theme of anger there and God's anger is an absolutely fascinating theme and very, very relevant to us today. Because those nine chapters of Amos contain an awful lot of information about why God gets angry and also contains, I think, some very helpful things about how God responds in relation to the injustice he sees. But just to give you a bit of background, we don't know a lot about Amos, um, but we are told that he came from a background that wasn't one of families, you know, dad was a, a prophet and granddad was a prophet and great grand it was always male, granddad was a great pro a prophet and all the rest of it. Um, that actually, this guy, he was a simple shepherd. He, it says he looked after sycamore trees. I'm not quite sure what that involved, but nonetheless, he tended sycamore trees as well as chasing around after his sheep. Um, and he wasn't a politician or a recognized leader of the day. He was an ordinary person, but somehow got this job of addressing what was going on in society of the day. Um, he's, um, they, it's thought that he's an older contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea, some of the perhaps uh, better known prophets, and that he spoke what he spoke and did what he did probably in the mid-8th century before Jesus. But, you know, you read a book and one piece of person will say this and read another one and someone will say that about when he was and all the rest of it. So I'm not going to focus on that. But the setting in which he spoke was really interesting. The king of Israel was a guy called Jeroboam. He was Jeroboam II because there was another Jeroboam before him. And he had reigned for 40 years over the country of Israel. And politically, things were reputed at the time to be quite stable. The reason they'd got to that stability was that they, and um, stability and economic prosperity, was that they had spent a lot of time invading and annexing other nations around them. Um, and actually, 40 years of reasonable stability and economic prosperity was built on corruption. Was built on corruption with the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Does that sound familiar? And that's why I think this book of Amos has an awful lot to say to us today. It was primarily addressed to Israel, but in fact had multiple audiences. Um, and including the nation of Judah, the surrounding nations, but for us today as one of the audiences. Now, what I want to do is just unpack fairly briefly what God is described as being angry about. Because what you have here is a God who obviously feels deeply, passionately about the stuff going on in society of the day, about people being exploited, about people being oppressed, manipulated, taken advantage of. And you hear in the words of Amos and the passion in those words, 
at the very anger of those words. They come from a God who identifies deeply, deeply, deeply with the pain of those who are under the thumb of the um, more senior, the more the leaders and others who were oppressing those who were vulnerable. And that violence against people is something that is deeply abhorrent to God. And that's what you hear in this book of Amos. Now, chapters 1 to 6, there are nine chapters, chapters 1 to 6, list the reasons again and again and again why God is angry, why God is deeply moved. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read out the verses, but I'm going to read out, and I've got a list of them here, the reasons. And they're like hammer blows. Each one, think as you hear it, what that means for the people who are on the receiving end of it. Brutality in war. Genocide. Ripping open pregnant women in war. Greed for land. Greed for wealth. Greed for power. Treating people as commodities, selling people into slavery, pre-planned assassination, murder of people, unbridled violence in many forms against fellow human beings, denial of dignity, denial of value, denial of worth of other human beings, people not even allowed a decent burial. Rape and sexual exploitation of women. Prosperity derived from corruption, robbery, oppression. Particularly oppression and exploitation of those most poor and those most vulnerable. All of this driven by pursuit of a, and desire to possess things. Opulent, excessive lifestyles expressed in skin-pampering lotions. There's one. That's an interesting one, isn't it? But actually oppressing others so that that might happen, that they might have the money to do that. Drunkenness. Upper-class women. He's, there's some choice expressions there of, of the upper-class women. Um, doing everything to feed selfish, pampered lifestyles. Crushing. It says crushing. That's a horrible word. Crushing those in need that that might happen. That is what God is angry about in Amos. That is what God is angry about in Amos. And lying behind it, again, addressed in Amos, are attitudes of self-satisfied complacency. There's no compassion. There's no remorse. All of this is expressed through the medium of religious hypocrisy. Um, in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, we're told that the, the people couldn't wait for Sabbath day to finish, you know, their religious day, to get back to their corrupt practices of fleecing people in the marketplace. Religiosity, gone crazy. External show, going through the motions, the reality of lifestyles, totally, totally different. And God is angry. He is angry. Our God is angry about these things. Um, and, and there's also hints within Amos. Well, not even hints. It's 
pointed to in Amos, that the drivers and shapers of this awful practice, endemic through society of the day, was not just selfish, self-centered greed, more, more, more for me, no matter what it costs everybody else, but it was also about an active turning away from God to the gods of other nations. And as we've looked at before in um, various talks on a Sunday morning over this year, um, we have been reminded that the gods of other nations were known as capricious, as violent, as self-centered, totally unlike the God of Israel, the Yahweh, who gives, who gives, who gives, who loves deeply and passionately. So you have in Amos one angry God. And I don't even know what that phrase triggers in you, thinking about an angry God. But I want to remind us that this is not a God who's having a tantrum, who's stamping his foot petulantly because people aren't doing what he would want them to do. This here behind the words of Amos, the anguish, the pain that God feels for the people who are on the receiving end of exploitation, of oppression, of day in, day out being ripped off and injustice. You know, for most of us, we recognize that when we get angry and others get angry, there's pain often that drives it. There's pain makes us angry as much as anything some hurt in our lives, or seeing somebody else hurt can make us angry. And what we see here in Amos is a God who feels deeply, deeply the anguish and the pain of the human beings that he has created and that he loves beyond all measure of loving. That's why God is angry. This is not a temper tantrum. This is a God who feels the pain of people. And we will see that ultimately when we come on to the next talk of the series, which focuses on Jesus, where we see that embodied. There's a verse in chapter 5, verse 24, that's a bit linked with the last, one of the songs we sung, where Amos says, Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's a beautiful Beautiful verse. What does God want? He doesn't want to be angry. He wants to see justice roll on like a river and righteousness, those inner attitudes, like a never-failing stream. Just take a moment. I am so glad I didn't rely on the technology. I was going to have a whizzy video with a river and the sound of it. And I thought, that would help us imagine it. And I am so glad I didn't do that because we wouldn't be able to play it. But I want you just for a moment to close your eyes and think about and bring to your imagination any rivers that you have seen or just a stream where the water is tumbling along. Just bring that back to your mind. What does it sound like? What does it look like? Just let that image fill your minds. It's a beautiful picture. You see um, a rolling river and a never-failing stream. 
drives, describes a force that sweeps everything along with it. A, a river that rolls along. It's a picture of abundance and fullness. A never-failing stream. Unlike the, the time in which uh, these words were spoken, unlike even our, our days now of climate change and the impact, um, at the time when this was spoken, there were seasons where the rivers and the streams just dried up. But what God is talking about here is about justice and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Keeps on coming. A consistency. Um, many of you won't be old enough to remember this, but there used to be an old um, Heineken advert um, that talked about Heineken could reach parts that no other lager could reach. I've just lowered the tone, haven't I? Yeah. Um, and... Um, there's something about water and streams and rivers that just reach the bits that perhaps nothing else can reach. I love watching uh, streams uh, as they go over stones and around stones and, and they just keep going. It just keeps going, doesn't it? And this description of justice and righteousness that our God is passionate about to see lived out in reality among people and let alone our environment and the world in which we are placed, is, is like that. It reaches everywhere. God's response, I reckon God is justifiably angry. If you care about people, would you not get angry about wholesale, endemic, corruption, exploitation, doing down of people, let alone selling people into slavery, let alone rape and sexual exploitation, let alone planning, oh, I want their land, so I'm going to murder them. You know, it's terrible. The nature and the scale of violence against others, particularly those most vulnerable, I think makes God justifiably angry. But, 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 God's justice in response to that, I want to just explore with you a little bit of something here that, in our criminal justice system in the Western world, there are two understandings of justice. One is justice as retribution. That uh, you have done something bad, you have to be paid back for it, and actually it can be driven by revenge. And we know that, don't we? Um, justice is about people getting their just desserts. And it's often about revenge. In the criminal justice system also is something called restorative justice, which doesn't ignore what people have done wrong, doesn't ignore bad things being done, but actually seeks to enable the person, the perpetrator, if you like, to be able to own what they have done, to own the responsibility for what they've done, to own the fact that actually there are consequences of that. But always in that is the whole thing of trying to enable that person not just to own it, but to make amends and to change their behavior. Restorative justice. There are restorative justice programs across the prisons of this country and in other parts of the world where there are people in prison who have done bad things. But that's not the end of the story. And it's not about retribution. 
It's more about people owning their responsibility, taking the consequences of what they have done, but there being opportunity, not just to make amends, but to change. Restorative justice, I reckon, is far more what God is about. And you read that here in this book of Amos. He confronted them. Chapter, chapter 4, three times, he said to them, you've done this wrong. This is terrible what you are doing. And, and, and these sad words, but yet you have not returned to me. And then um, in chapter 5, three times, um, it's recorded, seek me and live. Live your best life. Do justice. Come on, guys. It doesn't have to be like this. And it's repeated in quite a short book of the Bible. It's repeated again and again. So there are, it's, it's a dire situation. They are dire warnings. But the opportunity to own responsibility and do life differently runs through that book of Amos. And in particular, towards the end of it, um, I, get, I always get excited about some of these pictures you read in the Bible because they are so glorious. You, towards the end, um, you get beautiful pictures and promises of restoration and renewal and new beginnings. And they are pictures of abun- abundance, of, um, of um, the seasons merging into one another, like they're tumbling after one another in the abundance of the crops that are available. Um, the vineyards, I love this one, vineyards, um, people are enjoying good wine as a result of the fruitfulness of the vineyards. And it's a picture of abundance and joy. Um, there's activity that is productive and satisfying rather than a grind. Um, there's belonging and security talked about. Um, even when peoples have, come, have been in exile, there's the promise they will come home. And don't we all need to come home? and to know a place of belonging and security. And God promises all of this to the, to the people who do the list of things that I read out to you. That is God's invitation. And if we stop at just reading the angry words and fail to hear the pain and the anguish and the intention behind them, then we are missing something vital about who our God is and what our God is like. So what? Interesting theory. Or does it have some implications for my life and for your life? First of all, I think this shows us it's okay to get angry. Some of us come from backgrounds or have personalities or have been damaged by the anger of others. And so getting angry can feel very, very unsafe when other people are angry with us. I remember years ago, I'm better at handling anger now than I used to be. I remember I have one friend um, who's quite volatile and things are very black and white. And uh, she just exploded in anger at me. And I, I wanted to run. I didn't know how to deal with it. It, it was, I'd never experienced that from this person before. And, and everything within me wanted to get out of that room as quickly as possible because actually I just didn't know how to handle it. I think I've learned a bit better how to handle other people's anger by listening to the pain behind it more. 
That's hard when you're in a situation. But for all of us, some of us get angry very easily and we think, what's, all the, what's the big deal? Um, but actually many of us, particularly in our very British society where you're not, you know, stiff upper lip, don't show your emotions, and made worse, dare I say, by being part of the Christian community, where again, you've got to be nice. Oh, I hate niceness. You know, we, we have to be nice as Christians. We don't have to be nice as Christians. We have to love people as Christians. We need to be generous as Christians. We need to be real and authentic as Christians. We need to get angry about injustice as Christians, mirroring and reflecting what our God is like. And I think the, some of the so what of this is not just that we can, it's okay to get angry, but it's an invitation to us to share God's passion for people. And that's costly. We see the costliness of that ultimately in Jesus. God rolling up his sleeves, that self-emptying, suffering love that led God to the cross. But I think another so what for us is how we live our, day, our lives day in, day out. Our personal practice of justice. It's about the small things. You know, the thing about that awful list um, I read, those things don't happen overnight. They build cumulatively. They're about a whole series of choices that those people made. It started with being a bit self-centered, quite honestly. And, and actually, oh, I like to have a lot of good things in my life. And then I want more good things in my life. And then I will rip off people so I can have even more good things in my life. And by the way, maybe I'll do violence to them because I can have even more good things in my life. And it starts with small choices. So the challenge to me as I've been reading this is this whole thing about behaving justly in the small things, in workplace, in um, relationships, in neighborhoods, in interactions with people. And I'd put generously with justice, behaving justly and generously in relation to one another. And I think the final so what is hope in a God where love wins, where love wins. However badly you and I mess up, however badly other people mess up, there's the offer of a different way, a new beginning, and belonging with God. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I, I've been told, and I use it, forgive me if I've used it before as an illustration, that donkeys years ago, before you had you know, high-tech cameras, that wedding photos, what they would do to try and get that sense of the romantic haze around the photos, it, they would rub grease on the lens, just around the edges, so that the photos had the, the married, the couple that just got married, surrounded by this lovely sort of blur, romantic blur. And whether that's true or not, you know, that's not like God. The God we read about in Amos was utterly, utterly clear about what people were doing wrong. He was not just angered by it, but deeply grieved by it. Doing wrong to others, doing violence to others. And that God is the same God that offered hope and new beginnings and restoration. And join me in this adventure of this never failing stream, this rolling river of justice. Come on, get on board with this. That's what God is saying. 
So I think there's hope for us, however much in our own lives or other people mess up. There's an invitation from God in that and beyond that to live life differently. And I think that's what Amos is about. And at first reading, as you read it, you think, oh my goodness, what on earth? Oh, we won't read bits of the Bible like that because it's just about an angry God. Let's go deeper, go deeper and explore why and how and what's the invitation. God wants, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what God wants in our lives and in the way we live our lives. So I'm pleased I got the opportunity to talk about Amos. I think it's a brilliant book and I would commend it to you. And I think I'm going to stop talking now, Jen. Who's taking over?